Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 42 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Christina Stembel, the founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers. Celebrating its 10th anniversary, Farm Girl Flowers is a national floral e-commerce brand that features beautiful hand-curated arrangements and bouquets wrapped in their signature upcycled burlap coffee sacks. In this episode, Christina shares with us her incredible journey from growing up on a farm in Indiana to moving to New York City to pursue acting to working as the director of alumni relations at Stanford Law School, to launching Farm Girl Flowers from her apartment using just her savings. What started as a one-woman bootstrapped operation has blossomed into a team of over 160 people that spans two continents and six distribution centers. We talk about her experience being rejected by investors, how COVID affected her business, and how she's defied all the odds and building a self-funded flower empire expected to hit over $100 million in revenue by the end of this year. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello, Christina. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story in building Farm Girl Flowers. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored to be here and excited to talk to you. So I know that you grew up, I think, in Indiana on a farm. Can you tell us about your childhood? What was it like growing up? It was very different <laughs> than uh, what it looks like now. Um, yeah, I grew up on a corn and soybean farm, a town of 3,600 people, a couple stoplights. Uh, just not a lot of things to see. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that you can't be what you can't see. And so, um, I try to make sure I, I go back there and talk to, you know, high school students now and things like that to make sure that they can see something a little different than what they might be seeing. I grew up in a very gender rolled environment where, uh, most women that I saw were stay at home moms. Mm -hmm. There's anything wrong with it. That's the choice that they made, but that wasn't a choice I wanted to make. And you know, we were, my sister and I were, were told that that was our trajectory and, and my younger mm -hmm. brother would go to college. But for us, it was, that was what we would probably do. And it, it never resonated with me. So, so you just I have knew... to get really good at cooking, right? It's like, you better know how to bake because yes. <laughs> if you want to get a man, yeah. you got to be yes. able to cook for them. <laughs> yep. It's through their stomach, you know? <laughs> so, I was yeah. taught that. I yeah. swear to God, I was taught that. And on one of my first dates with my husband, I tried to cook, which I'm a worst cook ever. So of course it was like frozen food and I burnt it and it was horrible. And I cried because I was oh. terrified. I was like, I just lost this guy. Like I can't cook. Yeah. He's never going to think anything of me. You know, I had all this pressure and I totally Isn't screwed silly? it up. It's, it's so, so silly. silly. I know. Like it's, and I did, I learned to bake, <laughs> you know? Um, so I'm with you on that. And it's like, that is crazy. The fact that, you know, and I look back on it now and when I talk about the gender old environment here in, in Silicon Valley, people think I'm crazy, but it still exists in a lot of places. In the United I blame Especially. Betty Crocker, you know, yeah. Betty Crocker knows what guys like. No, yeah. you don't know anything, Betty. Nope, not at all. And now you can just rub hub anything to your doors. Exactly. <laughs> you don't need to cook. So. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that was, I mean, yeah, that's how I grew up. I, I moved to New York City two weeks after I graduated high school um, because wow. I didn't have a trajectory uh, laid out. I didn't, you know, I, the one conversation that my parents and I had about college was essentially that, what we just talked about, like, well, you wouldn't, why would you go to college? You're just going to get married and have kids. Like, that's a waste of money. <laughs> to get your MRS, you know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I was like, well, what do I do then? And so I knew I wanted to go experience like something different than the farm. And, uh, the only thing I could think of it was to be an actress because we had this little TV with three channels on it. I was like, well, I could do that, you know, and I did mm -hmm. drama club in high school and I was like, that's easy. I can do that. Um, so 
I was deciding between California, Los Angeles, or New York. And true story, the reason I chose New York was because I wrecked my car my senior year of high school. And I was like, well, in LA, they say you need a car. And I don't have a car now. So let me go to New York instead. So that's what I did. I you know, got an apartment from classified ads and, and moved to New York City uh, and got to see more people in my apartment building than in my entire town growing up. And it was just, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I was scared to death. And everybody's like, you're so brave. And I was like, no, I was just really naive. <laughs> I was just really naive. <laughs> but I'm glad I was because, you know, it showed me so much more of the world. And and that's how I, I got out of the, the small town. I, I really appreciate a lot about the small town. So I, I tend to like talk really negatively about it. I, I do appreciate a lot of the values I was taught. I was mm-hmm. taught to work really hard. And I think that is probably the secret sauce to bootstrapping a, a you know, company like I have is just the ability to work really hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I was taught on that, that farm. And I'm so appreciative of that. So there are a lot of things I took that are really positive, but I'm glad I, I left. So you kind of initially wanted to be an actress, it sounds like, and you moved to New York City to pursue that dream. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like in New York? And what year were you there, actually? Uh, 1996 to 98. All right. So, yeah. So what was it like? <laughs> I mean, you're there by yourself. It sounds like you don't know anybody who lives there. And, nope. you know, you're trying to make it as an actress. You know, tell us about your experience. Yeah, my experience really quickly was like, oh, this is not for me. Acting <laughs> life is not for me. Why is that? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it was that I realized that I wasn't that good. It wasn't as easy as it worked on that little static TV set. Um, and it was a lot of rejection, a lot of uh, expectations to, you know, it was, I started, I did some some very small amount of, of hair modeling and, and modeling when I was there. And it was a lot of pressure to like not eat and to look a certain way and uh, things that I was just like, this is not going to be my life. My life is not going to be focused around how much I can starve myself. It's not going to be around just the way I look. Um, it felt very, uh, you know, just to get so many rejections just based on you being 10 pounds too fat or, you know, things like that, where I was like, this is, I, I want to be worth more. And I've, I've been a feminist since birth. Like literally my parents have no idea where I came from. Um, you know, I was, I got kicked out of church when I was 17 because I asked too many questions and disagreed with them. Um, you know, I just, so it just felt really wrong that then all of my worth is put in the way I look for Mm -hmm. for acting and for for the little tiny bit of modeling. And so I was like this, I want to be worth more than this. And so I knew that that wasn't going to be the long term. and not that that it, there's amazing actors out there that are not based on the way they look. But what I found was that was what I was being judged on a lot. And it was dejecting and also just wasn't what I wanted long-term. So I just worked a lot of jobs. It's definitely hard to be um, judged on something you can't really control. Um, I modeled for almost 10 years, so I totally know exactly that life. And it's, um, you know, I definitely prefer entrepreneurship and having a lot more control over your destiny. Cause I was one of those, um, models that was trouble, you know, because I would call and I'd be like, why don't I have castings today? What am I doing? I need to go here. I'm on fire. I'm doing great today. Send me more places. And they're like, that's not really how it works. <laughs> totally, he tell yeah. you where to go and what to do and when, and I'm like, yeah. No, you're working for me, aren't you? That's what yeah. I was told. I'm giving you a commission, but no, they hate hearing that. Yeah. You're like, that's one of the only industries where it's not like that, right? It's like you're beholden yeah. to them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Definitely. So, you decided it's totally not for you the acting, the hair modeling, no thanks. Want to do something else? And you're in New York. What did you do? I just worked a lot of jobs. So, I have always worked a lot of jobs. And I think that that is, something that's really helped me, uh, especially building a company that has a lot of wage level jobs, because I worked a lot of wage level jobs. Mm-hmm. I worked, you know, a receptionist at a hair salon and at Starbucks as a supervisor and at Harley Davidson cafe in a retail shop. <laughs> I mean, I, I worked like every job I could find. I cleaned apartments. I cleaned factories. Um, I did anything I could, could find to make money. Um, and I learned really quickly how to budget really well. And I think that's something that's really helped me as well, because, you know, when you're bringing home $1,180 a month and your rent is 900 of it, how do you right. make it on less than $300 a month in you know, expendable income? And it's learning how to like ride your bike places and walk everywhere because you don't have a $1.50 subway token. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of that that has helped me in bootstrapping. You don't spend what you don't have. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any credit cards. And so just, I worked a lot of jobs. Um, I 
I left New York because I just couldn't, uh, I, I made it financially, but it was just a lot of work, you know, working three full-time jobs is a lot yeah. of hours a week. And I wasn't yeah. enjoying New York. I was just working in New York. And so I moved to Chicago where it was a little bit cheaper from there. Mm-hmm. Why and, Chicago? Um, Chicago, I thought that I was going to be able to afford to pay for college myself while I worked. Um, and there was a school there, Columbia college that was a lot more reasonably priced. And so, and rent was much cheaper there. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, my little spreadsheet that I had, um, on my, <laughs> you know, <laughs> piece of paper, <laughs> wasn't even a computer at that time told me that I could afford it better. Um, and then I could just slowly pay, you know, back that I thought like I need college or I'm not going to get a job that's not hourly minimum wage job. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I thought I'd be able to do that. I picked my job by where I lived. So literally the school was on, you know, one block, two blocks away was my little studio apartment that I lived in. And the one block in between was the Chicago Hilton and towers. And so I said, I'm going to work there because then Mm -hmm. I don't have to commute and I'm going to save two hours a day versus my my New York timeframe. And so I started working there and just fell into hotel management then like almost everybody in hospital. Hospitality. If you just work hard, you move up very quickly. Hmm. And so that's what I did in hotel management. I very quickly stopped going to college because I couldn't work the hours I needed to work in hospitality to move up and go to college and afford it. So I, you know, have maybe 20 credits of college. That's it. Um, so <laughs> that's why I just said didn't go to college because it was a very small amount. And um, just then I started working for another hotel company that recruited me while they were opening a hotel there and staying in the hotel I was I was working at. Um, for the Kimpton group, and then opened some hotels for them, the Hotel Monaco's moved around um, a little bit in the United States for that job to open hotels. Uh, And that was great experience. Uh, It was a lot of work, but great experience. And that's how it ended up out in California. Uh, It was actually for a guy, which I have to be really honest, I met a guy when I was opening hotels, lived out here. So I moved out here and managed two small hotels out here the guy didn't last, but I really liked the city. And so I stayed here. Um, and then, um, from there, I knew I didn't want to do hotel management the rest of my life. And I saw so many people around me that did fall into it and ended up being there 40 years later. And I was like, this isn't, I don't love it. Um, but that's really where I got kind of bit by the bug for entrepreneurship is when I moved to, to San Francisco, I saw everybody was doing really innovative things. And it had never once even entered my brain that I could start a company because the only people that I saw, I don't even think I knew anybody that owned a company growing up, but Mm -hmm. the people I saw were just like high up in management. So that's what I thought I could be. So that's why in hospitality, I was like, well, I can be general manager of a hotel. That's the highest level of that hotel. Then maybe I can become a district. I never once thought, wait, I could start a company. I could be the CEO of a company. I, you know, cause it just wasn't something I ever saw, but out here in, in San Francisco, I just saw everybody was, disrupting was a word that I learned very quickly in 2001. Um, when I was out here at the tail end of dot-com number one, and everybody was raising tons of money and starting these companies. And I was like, well, you know, I think I could do that. So I just started carrying a notebook around and coming up with ideas like crazy, an idea for every, every pain point I would experience, everything that I didn't like in the world. I was like, I'm going to do that better. What's my business idea, you know? And I would spend, you know, weeks researching it and coming up with names was my best part and buying URLs. I think I still own like 300 URLs at least. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. so, I'm coming to you next time I need a URL. <laughs> I wish I would have bought every short one out there. Mine were always really long because I thought that was better. So um, really brilliant. And so yeah, I just came up with lots of ideas, um, but I never did them because all of them required more money than I had um, saved. And so, you know, I it just, you know, came up with ideas and turned every girl's night into a, you know, beta testing or focus group where I'd be like, hey guys, what do you think of iron-on pockets for your suit? Check them out and show them my like, you know, iron-on pockets that I'd created. Uh, and then I'd give them prototypes that I'd cut out at my, you know, coffee table and have them try them out and stuff. So, um, you know, I think all of my friends and family were just sick of hearing an idea every single week, at least one, um, and kind of sighed a unified sigh of relief when I finally started Farm Girl. Um, but I came up with the idea with Farm Girl when I was working at Stanford University. Um, I went from hospitality to it was still hospitality at Stanford. I started there as the director of catering for the university. And I thought that it would be a smaller job 
that would allow me to start a company while I worked. Cause you know, all the books I'd read was like, you know, be a part-time entrepreneur at first, if you can't afford it. And company, you know, all of my education was just from books. And so that's what I heard you could do. But I found out that I'm the type of person, I think like most entrepreneurs that will turn a 40 hour a week job into a hundred hour a week job, no matter what you do. And just, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all like type A, like gotta do this the best way possible. All in extremist, you know, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's what I did. And I never actually started one uh, while I was there. I just moved around and kept moving up it to higher positions, as was my my pattern in life. And I was the director of alumni relations and campaign outreach for the law school when the economic downturn happened and everybody's budgets were cut. And one of the departments that I oversaw did the programs and events for the law school. And uh, I worked for a very aggressive and a good way Dean where we were in the middle of a campaign and he was like, well, our budgets are cut, but we still have to do the same amount or more events. So figure it out. And so when I was going to do the P and L's, I was like, why are we spending so much money on these, the decor at these events that we're asking alums for money. And, you know, I quickly found out that it was, it was a lot of tabletop stuff like flowers and, and decor for those. And I was like, why do flowers cost so much? When I'm looking at them, like they're between hundred and $200 a pop or ordering 30 at a time. Why do they cost that much? And so I started researching the industry because that's what I did for fun on weekends and very quickly shifted from the weddings and event space, which was my initial research um, because we did events to the e-commerce side because this was in 2009 and I saw that it was declining, uh, which nothing that I was researching was declining in e-com at that time. It was, you know, a boom for e-com. And then it was also... uh, really unsaturated as a market. There were three companies, four sort of, but three main ones that monopolized three quarters of the entire e-com space. And I had used all those companies and didn't like the experience and I didn't like the product. And so, you know, now I'd honed, I'd really honed in on like what I wanted the company to do that I would eventually start after 10 years of writing down ideas, you know? Yeah. And I knew that I, I needed it to be able to be in an industry that could grow really big. Uh, that was the main thing. It, you know, I didn't want it to be like, you know, crocheted towels or things like that. Um, because I was like, how many of those can you sell? Um, and a lot of my ideas had much smaller potential for growth. And so that one was one. I, I knew it would need to be bootstrapped at this point because I knew my lack of pedigree would not allow me to go down to Sand Hill Road and be like, right. hey, you guys, don't you want to invest in me? I'm like amazing. <laughs> you know, yes, I've worked every coffee shop and restaurant job and, you know, don't have much of a pedigree, but um, well, trust me, I'm not going to waste your money. <laughs> so I knew that wasn't going to happen. It would need to be bootstrapped. And I had at this point uh, $49,000 of savings, which back then I thought was an enormous amount is more than I'd ever had in my life. And so right. I thought that, you know, and this one wasn't a tech company. A lot of my ideas were like, would have required millions of dollars of initial capital in order to build the product. But this one, you know, I was fortunate enough to live in a, a city where there was a robust flower market. So I could buy small quantities of flowers, do it for my dining room table. There was a way to bootstrap this one. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. About those companies that you discovered early on as competitors, what were they not doing that you saw that you could do differently? Yeah, I was actually really fortunate that there wasn't a florist near my mother um, when I started this because I would have to use those companies. And so I was a customer. And what I was dissatisfied was with was many things that I found that a lot of young consumers were. First, they had too many options. I would spend my entire lunch hour looking for the least ugly option out of the minimum was 169 options on any of their sites. And I would inevitably end up sending like an all white bouquet because I'm like, how can that be messed up? It's all white flowers. But what was delivered never was all white flowers. It was like dyed Kelly green daisies. Um, It never looked anything like the picture. It looked like the same bouquet that I could have purchased at the local grocery store for $20. I just spent $100 on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was all the hidden fees of handling fees as well. Like I thought it was going to cost $50. It ended up costing $100 by the time I checked out. It looked like $20 from the grocery store. Now I know why. It's because they're made by the same bouquet maker. So of course they look the same, but I didn't know why back then. Um, and then, you know, my mom would receive it and she would call me and be like, oh, honey, thank you so much. Um, and, you know, she wouldn't send me a picture, but she would take one with like a 35 millimeter ca- camera back then. And when I would be home, six months later, and I believe that, you know, for the holidays or something, I would see a picture of it and I'd be like, those are ugly. That's not what I ordered. And with the invention of the smartphone, what I was seeing online was, you know, people were sending pictures, the recipient and the sender are different people, um, at least 75% of the time, because we're in the gifting space and, and they're in the gifting space. And it no longer became the thought that counts. Because if you're going to spend younger consumers are more discerning, right? And I was a more discerning consumer, if I was going to spend $100 of my hard earned dollars, you know, I, it better be $100 worth. And, you know, where I think it really relied on the thought is what counted before. And I just did not see that being the path that forward with younger consumers when they had so many more choices for gifts than just flowers. And so all of those things combined with not a lot of competitors where a lot of the industries I was looking at, I was like, this is so saturated. I think of like the travel online travel market. You know, I had an idea in that one. I was like, there's so many people already in the space. Now I know why it's so hard and perishable product is not anything I would ever do again, hands down. And when people ask for my advice, I'm like, don't do perishability. Literally just don't do it. Don't even try, you know? And I mean, I could have been wiser in my research to figure that out, but I was really naive at that point, having this been my first company. Uh, but there is one public traded company in this space and they don't exceed 10% net margins. And so that should have given me a good indicator that if a billion dollar company can't break 10%, even at scale, then this yeah. is going to be a really hard, you know, trudge to, to the finish line. So would you have done it anyways? Or you think no. you wouldn't really? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so how, how's it going? Huh? Yeah, so how, how's life? Um, <laughs> so you bootstrapped this company from early on. You didn't know this then, and you're thinking, I'm going to build a billion dollar flower business. Yeah. And you've got the forty nine thousand dollars in savings. And so, tell us about you know what were the first things you did to get things off the ground. Yeah. So the first thing, so I quit my job. So I did, was not a part-time entrepreneur. Um, I realized that there was no way I was actually going to do it. And I needed that like fire of no paycheck. Mm, yeah. um, it was a pretty cush job at Stanford. It's not going anywhere. Call themselves a nonprofit, not really nonprofit. Let's be real. You know, so <laughs> it wasn't going to go anywhere and I was going to continue to work hundred hours a week. So I quit my job in June and I gave myself until September to launch this this company from my dining room. Um, a friend of mine built the website uh, very cheaply for me and what we spend in, you know, in a week of, <laughs> you know, tech right now and engineering, um, built the website for me. Uh, I went to the flower mart, bought flowers, taught myself how to make arrangements myself. I bought books. And then I was like, throughout those books, because I was like, I don't want to make ones that look like what's out there because I don't like what's out there. So let me just create a bouquet that I would want to receive myself. So I taught myself how to make bouquets. I would then take those bouquets around to coffee shops with little marketing cards. And that was 100% of my marketing budget the first two years was going back to those coffee shops and counting how many cards were taken every week to see if it was worth putting another arrangement out the next week. And if it was like 40 or 50 cards were taken, I was like, yes, let's do another one. If it was like 20, I'd be like, no. And I'm like, that's the stupidest thing. It's cost me $20. A dollar customer acquisition is a, a great spend. Um, yeah. But back then that was too, too high for me. So um, I would do that. I would go to two to three networking events a night with, with flower arrangements and put them out at the reception tables, pretending that they'd ordered them, even though they hadn't with little nice. cards there. Um, I just did every, I just hustled basically. And I did every part of the business. I woke up at three in the morning. I went to the flower mart to buy the flowers. I'd bring them back. I, you know, double park on Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco and, and take the hall from my truck up to, to my, you know, walk up apartments. I turned the dining room, hundred square feet dining room into my like flower room. Uh, so I had a table and I would put all the arrangements together. The only part of the business I didn't do from the start was I, I hired uh, an external bike courier company to do the deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I came up with, you know, the branding for, you know, I wanted to create a brand around what we did. So that's how I came up with the burlap wrap. So then I would go pick up burlap at the coffee shops. I'd come back, I'd cut it. I'd, you know, make the arrangements, have them ready for them to pick up. And then I would do customer service and I would do sales and, um, all day long. And I'd go to bed around midnight and I'd get back up at three. And I did that 
for the first two years from my dining room. And then my corporate attorneys, landlord found out I was running a business illegally from a residential. Oh no. (laughs) And so unit. So I I had to to either move the business or myself and the business out. So I decided to just move the business out. And uh, that was, I would think that was actually riskier, felt riskier than actually starting the company because I wasn't profitable yet. I was still, you know, my savings were dwindling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got down to $411 at one point. I just, it, the, they were dwindling. It was barely, I was barely making it. I was eating a lot of ramen and drinking a lot of tea instead of coffee because it was cheaper. And, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of that and moving out in and taking on our rent before I, I could really afford it felt like the riskiest move that I had made. Um, but that was when it started to gain some traction and, and just make sure that? What was that early traction? You know, what were those um, proof points that you had that said, okay, I should keep doing this, right? Because you're working so many hours, you're working so hard. I think a lot of entrepreneurs kind of struggle to figure out what what's the, you know, breaking point of should I stop doing this or should I continue? What's that metric for success? That's a great question. And it's something that I think we don't talk enough about, like knowing when to quit. Mm-hmm. And then that's not a bad thing to just know when to quit. I gave myself two years or until I ran out of money. I've always had a goal. Two mm-hmm. years until I ran out of money was the first one. And at that two-year mark, I did see that we were starting to build. We were starting to, to, to not spend more than we were making. And it was starting to level out. And so then I gave myself one more year because I, I did not want to be, you know, the actresses that I would see in New York when I was taking classes there that were, you know, 50 years old and never had a break yet, you know, and I didn't want to be that entrepreneur. That's like doing this for years and years and years and never had a break. Um, I wanted to stop it, stop the bleeding and then go get another job, save some money and start another one, learn from it and do another one. You know, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just, I thought this was a great idea, but everybody else thought so too. And so every time at every, even, you know, at nine years, which is just a year ago, I gave myself a goal. And if I didn't complete it, I was going to sell the company. Um, at 10 years, you know, I've always had like, you know, at nine years, I was, you know, very burnt out and very much like, I can't continue to work this many hours to just break even. So if I don't have a path to 10% profitability by year 10, I'm out. And yeah. thankfully, you know, we, we have a path to profitability and almost did it this year. So, um, nice. but if we didn't, that was my, so I think you have to have very realistic and be self-aware, like everything in life, be really self-aware of what you're doing. I do have a friend right now that I I really just want to tell her like cut bait, you know, like it's not working. You've been doing this for seven and a half years. Yeah. You're not making it. It's not, it's not, you think it's a great idea, but the market doesn't. So, so move on to something else. So you're not wasting your best years, the years that you have the most energy, by the way, Yeah, um, on something that's not going to work. I think it's so hard for founders to let go, especially if they're in it for so many years, you're so emotionally tied to it. You know, it's hard to admit failure. It's hard to let go of something you've worked so long for, right? Because it's like, well, what did I do all this time? <laughs> what was it all for? Yeah. It's a learning experience. It's similar to relationships, right? It's kind of similar to relationships where you're like, stay in them yeah. too long because you're like, I've already invested this much, but yes. it's always the better idea to get out, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yep. Don't Start waste one more day. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking of investment, you have self-funded this entirely yourself, which is so impressive. Um, Huge kudos to you. I know that you tried fundraising. Can you tell us about your experience with that fund process? Yes. I would love to say like, yes, I decided I was going to be bootstrapped and that's what we did. (laughs) It wasn't that at all. Um, And in fact, I have wasted so many thousands of hours trying to raise capital and, um, was not successful. We did 104 no's, uh, tried really hard. It was different reasons at different points. I naively thought that once I proved the concept, I would be able to go out to those, those investors. And mm-hmm. I honestly did not think there was another way. I never thought that I could bootstrap to a hundred million dollars. I did not think that that was possible. Uh, I just, I never heard of it. You know, I mean, besides right. Patagonia and a product space, I'd never heard of any company doing that. And Patagonia's margins are much higher than what flower margins are. So I was just like, <laughs> with perishability, no one's done that that I know of. And, yeah. you know, I just never thought it was a possibility. So when I started to get all these no's and we had all of these strikingly similar companies pop up all by tech guys, hundred percent by tech guys, yeah. and they were all able to go secure pre-revenue funding. And I'm like going to the same investment companies and being like, 
these VCs. I'm like, but we have $5 million of revenue. So I've already proven it. Right. And I, I found that that actually hurt me a little bit because I thought it took too long for us to get there. And I'm like, but mm-hmm. I, I had to pay payroll, you know, and stuff like that. So you can't like lie on a spreadsheet when you have real numbers, but you mm-hmm. can when you don't have real numbers, I learned. And so the biggest reason is because that I've heard over and over and over again is that my team, they don't have faith in my team. They'd always be like, well, we have a thousand percent faith in you and what you've done is amazing, but you don't have a team and you're not gonna be able to get there without a team. And, and that is the craziest thing to me because yes, I don't have a team that looks like their teams. I don't have this C-suite that comes from, you know, Google, Facebook, wherever, you know, um, I have the hardest working team that and it's, it's funny because I shouldn't even have to say that, right? Like the fact that last year we went from 32 million to 64 million. And before that, I mean, we had huge years. We had 4.4 to 10.2 million. That's a huge jump with yes. no revenue. I mean, no uh, funding, you know, just right. on our own. Um, and so the proof is in the pudding. I shouldn't even have to like say that I have an amazing team because the numbers show that I have an amazing team because <laughs> exactly. otherwise I don't do that myself. I don't make bouquets every day. I, I can't make the highest amount I've ever made is 368 in a day myself. So, the, you know, I can't make thousands and thousands of bouquets every day. I can't sell those. I can't, you know, make the website great. I can't, you know, all those things I can't do on my own. So obviously I have a team that's getting me there and getting us there. And, um, so that was the the main reason too. And I just spent so much time. I mean, so much time. I, you know, those 104 no's weren't just no's by sending out a pitch deck and then saying, no, those were all ones that I met with many times, a lot of times. So, you know, like got seven or eight meetings, you know, and, then they would say no at the end and be like, we're just so sorry. We just can't get there. And it's, you know, <laughs> you're like, thanks for leading me on for months, <laughs> especially ones where I told them no to start. And then they still tried to convince me like, we're different. We're different. We're, you know, we invest in different companies than those other ones and stuff. So, you know, now, you know, I'm getting five to 10 inquiries a week <laughs> right now, which is just crazy to me because, you know, when people hear that you're going to hit a hundred million in, in bootstrap, then the, the risk is really low. Right. <laughs> light up they're like so are you fundraising exactly and now I'm just like I just won't take a single meeting no matter how hard they try to convince me I've decided I'm not wasting any more time um because there are years that I waste 30 percent of my time was trying to fundraise 30 percent and I just think Mm -hmm. instead of doing 100 million this year could we have done two if I just would have stopped doing that back then and so and now I know it's possible. And so I really want everybody to know that we like venture capital has been over glamorized, yes. you know, and, and it's, it's debt. That's what it is. And people hate it when I say that, but it's debt with really, really, really tight strings, yeah. you know, where, you know, you're beholden to make decisions. You know, we, you know, a perfect example of this is we are buying properties right now. Like we're buying the properties in which we do business in. And it is, I think an amazing idea. It's, it's basically McDonald's and, and look yeah. what they, you know, I mean, I didn't make up this, you know, and when I would tell, you know, one of the groups that we almost did a deal with and it fell through during diligence um, because they added a bunch of terms that were just not okay. Um, that no male, none of my male counterparts would have gotten those terms. hundred um, percent sure of that. Yeah. Uh, but when it fell apart, you know, and during the diligence process, I was telling them like, my plan is to basically become McDonald's. And if we have very low margins and flowers, we need to make higher margins and other things. And so, mm-hmm. and make money in other, other ways. And so, you know, buying the properties in which instead of just throwing away, you know, $50,000 for this distribution center a month in rent, why are we not right. buying the properties? That's stupid. Yeah. So, but to them, they're like, absolutely not. We need to spend every dollar in marketing so we can have that explosive growth, basically, that they want. Right. And just it's not the gonna, cash. Just burn it. Just burn it. You shouldn't be making money. It's totally fine to throw that away. And I was just like, <laughs> not, I mean, how far we've gotten from running healthy businesses, right? Yeah. With yeah. profit. And so now I'm making those decisions and we're buying the properties and we're providing benefits that I would never be able to do for my team, which I actually think help us be able to continue to grow that revenue at that explosive rate because we have a team that wants to be there and feels taken care of and, you know, cared about, which is really important. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Um, and I love that you're buying some properties now and you're, you're spending money in the right ways. You know, it's, it is so different when you take on venture capital and the expectations and the responsibility, it's just such a different type of business when you're taking outside capital. Um, so you know, there's been lots of challenges, obviously, as a founder, we have challenges every day, <laughs> fires to put out. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced in growing your business? And how did you overcome them? 
there's been so many, <laughs> so many challenges. Um, I would say I would kind of put it in two camps. There was year zero to nine and then nine to 10, because that was, that's the year of COVID basically. Right. So zero to nine, the big challenges that I thought were like insurmountable, basically, um, they were just so hard, uh, now seem kind of, they pale in comparison to the last year, the challenges, but they're still hard, really hard. I think when you grow that quickly without money, the biggest challenge is you can't hire enough people. You don't have enough money to hire enough people at the levels that you need to. And so one of the big, I don't know if I call it a mistake because I don't know that I could have done it any differently while bootstrapped, but I wasn't able to bring in high enough level of, of leadership in the operation side of our, our business. And because we we're a, a manufacturing facility, so we're basically a factory, we're a flower factory and we're not this Instagram, like we'd come in and play with flowers and it's so cute. No, it's this factory. You come in, there's quotas. There's, you know, I mean, we're making thousands of bouquets, just like, like if we were making thousands of rolls of toilet paper every year, mm-hmm. every day, you know, um, yeah. or sweaters or anything. So because I didn't have a, a lot of money and we were operating in the most expensive city in the United States being San Francisco, that is not conducive or friendly for manufacturing facilities. Yeah. We couldn't recruit good people. Um, we couldn't, I couldn't afford to pay high enough level manufacturing, like operations, uh, leadership. And so what we were left with was a lot of people with a lot of heart that wanted to do well, but didn't have the skill set to do well. And so it stunted our growth. It really hurt our culture a lot. Um, and looking back, the one big, the big mistake that I wish I could, could have corrected is um, or would have corrected is I should have moved it out of San Francisco long before I did. And I only moved that distribution center out of San Francisco when I was forced to shut it down with COVID this year. Hmm. And it was the best silver lining of the entire year because we could never have been successful in San Francisco with a manufacturing facility, but it was so big already. We are, you know, had 197 team members. We had all these bike careers that people in the city loved. You were invested. So we, you were invested in so it. So invested. And think of the PR <laughs> nightmare of being like, we laid off 200 people in right. San Francisco um, with wage level jobs and things like that. And so I, I didn't do it when I should have. I didn't, and, and now I look at it and I'm like, we need to do the hard things no matter what, no matter if it's hard to do and I get beat up in the press or whatever it is, if it's going to save that many jobs. So, you know, like right now we have 280 people and I owe those 280 people paychecks. And so whatever I need to do to do that, um, that's what I'm going to do, even if it, it hurts a lot. And so that was a big one. Our culture was horrible in 2016 because we grew too fast. Um, that was the year we went from 4.4 to 10.2 million. And what when I think you, when you yeah. use horrible culture, because we talk a lot about culture and the good, you know, how to create positive, mm-hmm. great culture. But what do you mean by the culture was not good? Oh, it, it was to the point of like police being called because fights were breaking out. Like, oh, wow. I mean, it's like, it's like, um, it was bad. It was really bad. Um, I'm imagining been, like gangs, you know, <laughs> you have like clicks in each corner. Like. I mean, we didn't have a single holiday in San Francisco where the police weren't called because we had to hire so many temps and, and then our team, and then you're working overnights and it's, you're just hiring anybody with a pulse. Literally, that's what we're doing. We're hiring and you you come in and be like, I want a job. Be like, can you start right now? We were just going so quickly that we had a minimum of like, you know, 30% open jobs at every given moment and could not fill them in San Francisco because wage level jobs, like making, you know, 18 bucks an hour in San Francisco where your rent is $3,000. Nobody does that, right? Like they move if they can't, don't have earning potential at a higher rate, right? So we were competing with every McDonald's, with every Starbucks, with every fast food restaurant on team members and who would pay five cents more, 10 cents more. And, and you create a culture just like chaos, basically, where you're just hiring so quickly that you, you aren't hiring the right people and you don't have seasoned leadership that has a lot of experience. So while they're trying their absolute best, they don't know how to do it, you know, right. well, yeah, especially with the teams that are, you know, just not used to manufacturing jobs. They aren't. They're, you know, people would call it a sweatshop. And I'm like, you guys have no idea what a sweatshop is. None <laughs> whatsoever what a sweatshop is. This is not a sweatshop, you know? Um, and $18 and an hour doesn't sound like a sweatshop. With full benefits, paid vacation, 401k with matching. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's like, this is, yeah. In the most expensive um, city. In the most expensive, yeah, totally. Totally. So, you know, it was, that was 
that was, 2016 was really, really hard. And what I had to do in 2017 was slow down our growth intentionally to get our stuff together, basically, because that was the smallest growth we'd ever had. Um, the next year, we went from 10.2 to 14.7, which was really small as a percentage for us growth, but it was intentional. I turned off marketing for six months, sold out every day. We limited the numbers we would do because I needed to build the infrastructure. We had four managers running the entire $10 million operation. You know, there's, it's just, you know, because I didn't have the money, we didn't have the time to do proper training and, um, and it showed. And so that was a huge challenge. Um, huge, huge challenge, uh, was that just, and keeping culture good has just been, it's a constant challenge for us. Um, no matter what's going on, um, because it just, it just is, we have wage level jobs where in California in general is really, really expensive. So now Mm -hmm. we're looking at, do we stay in California? Um, you know, it's, it's just in a state that with the highest tax code, I mean, all these things where could we, could we do it better somewhere else, uh, where manufacturing is, is it's more friendly for manufacturing, just constant things like that, where we need to, we need to keep working on that and doing the hard things. So you guys did move out of San Francisco. Where did you guys end up moving and, and how's that going? Yeah. So last year, 2020, it was full of challenges, just like every other company experience. And there were some highs and some lows. We definitely benefited from already being an e-commerce company and our sales reflected that. So I don't like to take all credit for hundred percent growth year over year because people couldn't be with people they loved and they sent gifts instead. And so we definitely benefited from that. But every single thing we did last year was hard fought. And so we were told we need to shut down in San Francisco with 12 hours notice. Uh, wow. We already had hundreds of thousands of dollars of flowers on their way to us. This was March 16th of last year and uh, had to furlough 191 people in one day out of 197 wow. and then had to yeah figure out what to do to keep the company afloat. And at that point, I gave us about a 10% chance of making it. I was like, there's, there's just no way. And we had a little bit of luck thrown in there with, um, I had decided the previous fall to open a facility in Ecuador when I was there on a trip and saw that we could not hire. We literally had 30% open positions at all times that year at the San Francisco location where we did 100% of our, our production. And I was there and I just saw so much need for jobs there. Uh, you know, it's at that point, it was 60% unemployment or underemployment. And I'm like, why am I fighting to try to get team members here where all of these partner farms that we work with, there's so many people that need jobs here. So we decided yeah. to open a DC there in November, um, at, at end of October. And we opened it in January, which a lot of people thought it was nuts. They're like, you're opening a DC in another country in three months, but that really helped save us this year because we had another facility. Well, it was only, it only had the infrastructure to do about 10% of our orders. We could quickly, you know, change that so that we could shift our orders there and then figure out what to do here. And so got to work. And within two weeks, we had opened a facility at one of our farm partner farms uh, down in Santa Cruz County, which is about an hour and a half south of San Francisco. Um, So we relocated some of our team members there to help set that up. And, uh, you know, that was very expensive. And it was a big gamble on whether this was worth it or not. Um, You know, basically, I'm trying to preserve every dollar at that point. Um, And we had to train a new team down there that was used to uh, harvesting and planting flowers. And we trained them instead to make flower bouquets instead um, in a three-day period and then get that going um, in a different language, which was very challenging. Um, so we did that uh, and it worked, which was great. And then we opened, we had another issue, huge issue this year that we're still experiencing. Everybody in e-commerce, I think, is experiencing this with the, the major delays in transportation from FedEx and UPS and, and shipping carriers because the supply just isn't enough for the demand right now for everybody ordering everything to their homes. So yeah. we, you know, had all these challenges of we needed to get enough supply for the demand in time for Mother's Day, which we did. We opened uh, four facilities in five weeks wow. um, before Mother's Day. It was really hard. And then we had this huge transportation issue of you know, instead of it being 2% of our orders, not making it there in time, some days it was 100%. And with perishability, you can't just have it arrive a day late and still be alive. You have to reship the entire thing. So we had $1.2 million of losses the month following Mother's Day um, from transportation. And so then we decided we need to open in Miami to help reduce that friction. Uh So then we could have it coming from two locations. So we opened Miami in the summer. 
Um, and that was just big and a huge challenge. And we, we did that um, just since we opened a, another distribution center in Ecuador for overflow. We just have done whatever we need to do. We just pivoted really quick and did it. Um, How many centers do you have now? We have three full-fledged distribution centers, and then we have lots of partner fulfillment centers. We have, uh, we have six of partner fulfillment centers, and that will grow to probably 20 to 30 in the next year. Wow. Um, and then we'll open another distribution center as well this year. So we just keep pivoting as quickly as we can to fill the need. And whatever we're experiencing, whatever the pain point is, which is like, you know, for Valentine's Day, which is coming up right now, yeah. you know, the big distribute or the big um, issue is, is transportation um can't have 12 million dollars of orders in one week not be delivered on time right you can't recover from that so it's how to mitigate risk that way so you know we've, we've done a lot of things to to try to lessen that risk um for balance and we'll see if it works so you basically have had to become like an enormous like operations expert over the past couple of years <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> what we do is logistics and operations yeah. and it could be anything we just happen to have it be the hardest thing in the world being flowers. It's even harder than food because our perishability is just so much more than food even. So it's right. Which is why I say I would never do it again. (laughs) (laughs) But here you are. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader and a founder, a CEO? I'm constantly learning. So I don't know if there's really one thing Mm -hmm. and I am evolving as I go. Um, I think that I've made a lot of mistakes as a leader that. I'm okay with because I learn from them and then hopefully become a better leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think as a female leader too, there's a whole set of expectations that come with that that are different than if I was a male leader. And that's been challenging. So, you know, I... Like what? Ten, what um, are some of those you think? A respect level, I think, is very different if you're a female leader versus a, a male leader by your team even. There's just an inherent respect, I think, because we've been conditioned as people to mm-hmm. think of males in leadership positions and we don't with women. And so, you know, it's a constant struggle of, you know, I tend to be a very open and vulnerable. I'm a huge Brene Brown fan, um, leader yeah. in general, but sometimes that's not great because there's, you know, less respect by your team. If you are so vulnerable and open with them. Um, and so I've had to try to figure out where that boundary line is where, you know, I'm not a mother, to a team, you know, I'm not, you know, we're very clear that this is a high performing sports team. This is not a family. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I'm trying to constantly work on that to make sure, you know, I don't want to lose my heart and I don't want to lose, you know, just who I am as a person, but Mm -hmm. I also need to be, uh, perceived as as a strong leader. And sometimes I think that whole, that saying, you know, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. I, I feel that very often. And, you know, the expectations that sometimes team members have of me to be their everything and to give them exactly what they want and things like that, that I don't think would happen if I was a male leader. And so, Hmm. you know, I want to continue to lead with vulnerability and, and heart, but I also need to make sure that the boundaries are very clear on, on who I am and what I am as a leader to them. So that's something I'm, I'm constantly working on, um, and I'm not quite there yet, but I'm hoping that I will be there. Um, I, I think the things that I do really well as a leader is I don't focus on the problem ever, pretty much. Um, it's just like the solution immediately. So, yeah. you know, it's just when people bring problems to me, I'm like, let's, let's okay, that's not really, that's just a thing. Now let's solve it, you know? Yeah. And so moving very quickly to the solution phase and the problem solving phase, I think has really made me a strong leader and and has, has kept us alive, especially this last year, yeah. uh, where I don't get so emotionally tied to, to what the issue is. Let's just, let's get to the outcome. Yep. Let's fix it quick. Yeah. <laughs> Stop the bleeding. Are, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not with a bandaid, but like really try to heal it, you know, exactly. maybe exactly. bandaid for a few days, but then go back and rip it off and try to fix it. Get the stitches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anesthesia. Um, what are some limiting beliefs you've had to overcome to get to where you are? You know, I think we all have, uh, can I really pull this off? Can I really, you know, did you, as you were kind of going after your vision of what this could be, you know, what were some of those back of the mind thoughts, fear thoughts that you had to overcome? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I had to overcome, I've I've never really understood imposter syndrome that much. I mean, I do think that I've had a lot of insecurities about not having a college degree, not having the pedigree Mm -hmm. that people want to hear, you know, um, about and, and respect inherently. 
Mm-hmm. So there's definitely been that, like, am I good enough? But right. I've never, I've always believed in myself. And I also am not really afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. I am don't like failure like anybody else, but I'm, you know, I heard, I think it was Robin, the CEO of, of Smitten Ice Cream said this, and I, I love it. Um, so that, you know, she's more afraid of regret than failure. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel. I'm more afraid of regret of not giving it all I've got, um, you know, which is literally when I thought gave us 10% chance of making it through COVID. And I was like crying on my couch being like, what the heck am I going to do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I, a lot of other entrepreneurs. Exactly. <laughs> freak exactly. Out moment. Yeah. I decided very quickly that, you know, we might go under, we very much might go under, but I'm going to give it the fight of my life. Um, so if I do go under, I have no regrets later on. So yeah, I don't have that. I think that the thing though, that I've had to really overcome, especially where I'm sitting right now in Silicon Valley is the thought that success equals traditional funding, like venture capital mm-hmm. funding. And, uh, to not, I, I just had to give up the belief and it's, my truth now, when I finally realized this, it was the most freeing thing that the investors are not the smartest people in the room. I think I was very intimidated by them to start. They all have that pedigree. They have those fancy educations and, and, you know, they would tell me what I should be doing differently. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right in my brain. And I I have, you know, at that point, like seven years experience of this. And how is this like 26 year old guy with a spreadsheet that's never run a business telling me, that this is what I should be doing when every company I'm seeing doing that is going under right now. So, you know, like, you know, Mavron telling me, you know, figure out on-demand delivery because you're never going to make it without on-demand delivery. And all of those companies are now out of business because I literally brought back to them four different financial models and said, I've done it so many different ways. And this is the closest I could get, but I have to charge $44 for delivery to do on-demand. And I don't think anybody's going to pay for that. And here's my focus group that shows nobody's going to pay for that. So, you know, I think realizing that, the, that I can be successful. And, you know, it's also an ego, like getting my ego out of it because, you know, every reporter seems to go to crunch base and find the, you know, top 10 female run companies or own companies that have raised money that year. And then that's the cover person on entrepreneur magazine or Inc magazine of like, this is the female entrepreneur to watch this year. And literally the whole thing, or this is the list of female entrepreneurs to watch. And it's all like this person raised 68 million, this person raised this. And it's like, but yeah, what does that mean? Why is that our success metrics? Like, why is that the only thing that makes somebody successful? And I think my ego is really getting involved there and making me feel less than because I hadn't been able to raise capital. And once I got over that, and now when people say they're bootstrapped, I'm like, they deserve 1000 times more kudos. <laughs> I know. Put them at the top of the list right now. Yeah, because they haven't run out of money, which is my biggest accomplishment to date. It's not yeah. running out of money. So that's amazing. I love that. And I agree with you. It's definitely this the entrepreneurship in general is um, hyper glamorized, but even more so if you raise venture capital. And you're right, that's not a, a metric for success. So why do you, I I can't figure out why that is honestly, because if somebody comes to me and says, I just got $60 million from, you know, Citibank as a loan, I wouldn't be like, good job. Great. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) You're going to be so successful. But we do that. And I'm like, it's literally just a loan with high strings and they're going to get their money before you ever see a penny multiple times over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, I don't understand why they have such a different perception than banks or any other kind of lending facility. So many strings are attached to that cash for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So if you could change anything about your journey, what would you have done differently? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, (laughs) I think I would have not given 30% of my time to try to raise capital, I would have, if Mm -hmm. I have a 2% chance as a solo female founder, I would give it 2% of my time. Uh, So I would have done that and probably been much bigger um, revenue wise as a company right now. I would have, like I mentioned earlier, moved it out of San Francisco much earlier. I would have Mm -hmm. moved to a more manufacturing conducive environment um, and done the hard things that way. I would have really taken to heart. And one of my goals is to to care about people, but not what they think of me. Mm-hmm. And that's been a hard road, especially having team members and, 
never making anybody happy, really. Never, you're never making anybody happy. You're making right. them partially happy, but not fully happy. And I just would give up trying um, because I think that's a very freeing thing to be like, I'm, I'm doing the best I can with what I have and that's all I'm going to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so really embracing that and not worrying what people are saying about you because the, the bigger you get, the more people want to see you fail. And that's mm. been really hard for me. Like everybody loved this little story of this engine that could when we're tiny. Mm-hmm. And then when you get bigger, it's like, well, she's not doing this right. And, you know, these ex-employees are saying this about her or this, you know, like right. it's just all this stuff because people want. They're like, she's actually doing it. Story. She's actually making it happen. What can we find wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, yeah. you know, other really worried about like other people in the space, what they were saying about me and in, in our industry. And I just, I don't really care anymore. And so I wish I would have embraced that much sooner than 10 mm-hmm. years in. Yeah. Um, you have to be like a deaf frog. There's a story from way back. My friend told me a long time ago and it helped me get through a few things. And it was like, okay, there's these frogs. They're in a race. They're they're They've got a race at the top of this mountain. Right. And so they're going up the mountain and they're racing and everyone's like, wait, you're getting up there too high. Come back, come back. You know, like all the fear from the crowd is like, whoa, you're going way too high. Like it's dangerous up there. Come back, come back. Of course, like one frog wins, he comes back. They're like, oh my God, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? And he's not answering. And they're like, why isn't he? Hello? Like, how'd you do it? How did you make this happen? Everybody else quit. And no response because he was deaf. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. So I always tell my friends, I'm like, be a deaf frog. Don't listen to everybody else. <laughs> that is amazing. That is so good. I think that might be our next poster that we make at Farm Girl. It's a deaf frog. <laughs> so good. I was like, be that deaf frog. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. So I think, you know, you're right. You just got to keep plowing along and like, yep. you know, not listening to other people, obviously grain of salt with people's advice. Um, but yeah, just keep, keep on hustling. Um, yeah. I mean, they're not in the arena. Um, you know, right. we made the man in the arena into a woman in the arena. Um, you know, because it, it from theater as well, it's, I, I have that on my wall right here. I, I just, you know, they're not in the arena. You know, everybody's right. an armchair quarterback now. Totally. You know, don't read yeah. the comments. Don't care. You know? Yep. <laughs> All they have things. no idea yes. what it's like. Yeah. To None. be in your seat. Yeah. No. And it's so easy to look at other. And I used to do this too all the time. And now I'm like the most compassionate, empathetic, probably person. Like when other companies are getting beat up and stuff, I'm like, they have no idea what they're going through. You know, know. even like, like stop being nice <laughs> to them. <laughs> exactly. Or or like I remember, you know, things my parents would complain about about their jobs. And I'm like, and now I'm like, you realize how much that workers comp is, or you know what I mean? I'm constantly like thinking like the reason they're doing that is because of X, Y, and Z. And I understand right, it. Right. You totally understand yes. the company perspective. Yes, totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Too much. <That's> funny. <laughs> so you guys are going to probably hit what a hundred million this year. That's so impressive. What else do you have in store that you want to share? Yeah. Um, I'm, I feel re-energized uh, with the company now, which is a really good place to be at. At year nine, I was really burnt. And I just, you know, as I mentioned, I just didn't know how much longer I was going to be doing this. And I'm super energized now because this last year, as hard as it was, made us a much healthier company financially. And then also, you know, our customers have been amazing and just sticking by us. And we recently did a survey to find out why people buy from us that we do a lot. And it was the first time that it, it switched from being our flower aesthetic that they liked to uh, that they liked our company. That was the number one reason. And so that's so heartwarming and also gives me a lot of thoughts and opportunities available to us if uh, people are buying from us because they like our company. It gives us more avenues and uh revenue stream potential that might have higher margins than perishable flowers and so we're working on a lot of additional product lines that i'm excited about that we'll be launching this year we'll be opening another distribution center this year uh we need to get our shipping rates down i cannot believe we've been able to grow to 100 million potentially this year hopefully with $25 shipping rates, it just, it blows my, my mind. We're so much higher than anybody else in our industry and in any industry, basically. Um, and people are willing to pay that. They don't want to pay that, but they're willing to pay it because we have a superior product and customer experience and in our opinion, in their opinion. Um, but I need to get that down. And so opening more distribution mm-hmm. and fulfillment centers, um, is, is how we're going to do that. So it's going to be a, a year for us that is just as fast and just as hard as last year. 
Uh, but I'm excited about it because we're in a pretty healthy spot. We're also launching some employee benefits. I'm super excited about, we're starting a profit sharing model this year and, um, working on something in the childcare space with either onsite or subsidized childcare, um, for our team. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, so I just think if we can take care of our team, they take care of us and it allows us to keep getting to the next level. And so we just have a lot of really a lot of work. Like it's a little daunting and how much work is in front of us, but I'm excited by it. Um, and I'm excited to do it with my team that I currently have because I have the best team I've ever worked with in my life. That's awesome. Well, final question. What other advice you've already shared so many awesome insights for the listeners, but for, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening or business operators, um, what is some advice that you have? Any final words? Yeah, I think, um, the the best advice I can give an entrepreneur, we already talked about like know when to call it quit. So mm-hmm. besides knowing when to call it quit, get back up. Uh, you know, this year has been a testament of just like getting back up for so many people and us included. Mm-hmm. And I felt that way the first nine years that like resilience was our secret sauce that we just kept getting back up. Yeah. Uh, but this year, especially you just get back up and, and you keep going. And I think it's so easy to just get dejected and overwhelmed, you know, that, that saying about no one to take a break and no one to quit, like mm-hmm. take a break, sleep a little, cause it's probably because I've slept <laughs> in three days. That's when it happens to me and then get back up. Don't worry about what people are saying about you. I think that as we also talked about, that is one of the biggest fears is, you know, like when you fall down and you get up and the first thing you do is look to see who saw you, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same thing in entrepreneurship. Like when you fall, you're like, great. Now you don't fall quietly anymore because everybody's writing about it when you fall and, yeah. you know, on social media or in the press, but just don't worry about it. Don't look around, just get back up and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed hearing your story. I think it, you know, interviews like this are my favorite because you are a college dropout. I am too. (laughs) You you bootstrapped your business. You, you know, believed in yourself to build something absolutely incredible with nothing. And that is enormous, huge accomplishment. So I hope you're very proud of yourself. I know so many people are, and um, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And um, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.